Welcome again to Hiawatha. As uh, was said earlier, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad you guys are with us today. If you're visiting for the first time, especially welcome to our church. Glad you guys are here to worship and to learn wherever you guys are spiritually, to learn more about the Bible and um, about Christ, be exposed to it at least. And that's where we're headed now for this portion of our service. We uh, give over to preaching, to hearing from the voice of God from the Bible which is uh, really this uh, Christian uh, biblical way to approach it is not just, this is someone's ideas about God, but this is actually how God speaks primarily to a a dead and dying world as he speaks through written word. And and obviously there are other ways to do that too. God can speak in dreams. He can speak through people. He does, but it's grounded in what he's, uh, his self-disclosure through his word, through his son Jesus uh, primarily, but then also through all the scriptures as they point ahead to him and reflect explicitly on him in the New Testament and point back to him as well further. On in, in the New Testament. So we're doing that right now through as we always do, but right now the particular lens by which we're approaching the gospel, approaching to learn more about Jesus is this Old Testament book of Song of Solomon. So we started last week. If you're just joining us for the first time today, maybe ever, you haven't missed too much, but um, if you do have 45 minutes to give this week and you weren't here last week, we talked a lot last week about how to read this book and really how to read the Bible in a greater uh, sense. And this is a very heavily poetic, notoriously difficult book to read and interpret. And so we always talk about these types of matters when we talk about a new series or a new book of the Bible. So it's always kind of standard practice for us, but especially when it's just hard to read this stuff. And it's poet, what, who's talking where? And what does this mean? Heavily poetic and allegorical and all of this. And so especially when we approach genre like this to ask, well, what, how does the Bible handle this stuff? And where do we get meaning from? What's God really trying to say to us uh, in this, uh, this particular book? So we're going to spend 15 weeks uh, in, in Song of Solomon uh, through mid-May. If you're not uh, clear on what uh, Song of Solomon is or Song of Songs, it is old, the genre is Old Testament wisdom literature written by King Solomon, son of David, around 960 B.C., uh, give or take. It's poetry, like I said before, and it's a love story uh, between a man and a woman. Uh, it really just kind of... Uh, you know, down to brass tacks is what it is. And I said love story last week. It might be a little bit more appropriate to say love dialogue because it's, uh, it's spoken kind of in that first person and second person of, you know, I-, I feel this way about you and you are like this to me. And the whole thing's just them talking to each other. Sometimes a third party called the Others Group, loosely connected as the Daughters of Jerusalem, they're called elsewhere, with uh, the bride-to-be, the woman. But really, primarily these two people, the he and the she, King Solomon and this uh, Shulamite woman, as she's called elsewhere in the book, and they just talk about each other. Uh, so it's a love story, but, you know, from front to back, in this order, it's, it's a love dialogue about their engagement, their wedding, and ultimately their marriage together. So just starting off today, again, last week's intro stuff, how to, and I'll, I'll recap some of this here in a second in terms of how uh, to read it, but uh, really in the big picture, it's just helpful. If you have at least that, you know, in mind, so at least, okay, well, they're engaged here. Here's the wedding. And here, they're married at this point. Okay, at least I got that, you know. Then kind of fill in the gaps um, at that point. So have that in mind. The, the wedding is the end of chapter 3. and We'll get there up to that point, including today, is anticipation, excitement, engagement, that whole engagement time, and, and, uh, and so forth. So we'll get uh, exposed to that here today. But in, again, in terms of how to read the book and a genre, like it's a little bit trickier. We talked about it last week. Again, I'm not going to go into all of that today, but just to catch you guys up to speed, in a nutshell... Uh, we're going to read the book like we would any other book of the Bible, as though it were a part of a greater story, in other words. Not sitting alone on an island of meaning amidst the greater redemptive narrative all around it. In other words, put another way, we're going to use the Bible to read itself here. 
Uh, and in the same way that, that the Bible then theologically approaches these issues or, or themes or motifs like love and sex and marriage, uh, times of engagement, just like love in general between a man and a woman, in the same way the Bible reads that motif and, and interprets it theologically more clearly elsewhere, we're going to use that as an interpretive key. Now, like the Bible, again, does this all over the place. There's foggier parts of the Bible and there's more clear parts of the Bible. To have those more clear parts blow the fog away from the foggier parts, it's the best tool you can use to read the Bible, bar none. If you're brand new to the Bible and you're just stuck somewhere trying to read it, I would just say, I would encourage you with that, is where else in the Bible does this motif come up? And how is it more clear there? And what does the Bible say about uh, the, the matter there? And, and without, without, without fail, God is always saying, Christ is the clearest part of the Scriptures. He, he is the, the defining clearest part. He's the climax of the whole story, and he he defines the rest of it. He blows at that fog. So it's, it's always about him. It's always about his love for sinners. It's always about this greater thing God's doing in the world to, to uncurse or decurse uh, the fallen world. And, and Christ is that, that main remedy. And so it's always all about him. So when the motif of marriage comes up, that's what God is doing. It, it, he, he says marriage. He says engagement. He says relationship. But he's also saying in that, this is my poetic depiction of my love for you and specifically Christ's love for the church. So again, when a man loves a woman, when he proposes, when they marry, God says to us in that, I'm kind of like that husband right there, but greater. So God can say, I love you with a radical, sacrificial, married, husband-like love, and he can also show it to us and say, marriages exist. I, God says, I created marriage. I, I began marriage. I started marriage for this one purpose, ultimately, to, to benefit people, and it's, it's a blessing to be in that covenant with another person, but Ultimately, because I'm marrying sinners. I'm the ultimate, capital H, husband. And the ultimate wife is God's people. First in the Old Testament, Israel. Now in the New Testament, new Israel, spiritual Israel, which is Jew and Gentile who believe in, who believe in Christ. All part of that greater, greater storyline. So your sin is that far removed from you, in other words. And this is huge. Understand, don't take this for granted. The fact that God is saying the, the ultimate defining thing between me and you, the ultimate thing that that weds us and gets us close, whereas we're not close before. Sin is a great chasm that can't be crossed. We've rejected God. The thing that brings us close is my husband-like love for you. It's love. And as we read, I mentioned this last week, as we read, notice the absence of things like law in the book. It's wonderfully, gloriously absent. These things that, for part of the biblical storyline, tried to unite us to God, tried to bring us close, but the whole time God was saying, stay Stay away. Come close, but don't get too close because you'll die. You cannot enter my presence as a sinner and live. But what Christ did is this ultimate intermediary is he abolished that system, and now it's wedded to God. It's not even like come you know, toe-to-toe with God. It is God is in us, and we are in him. Like a husband and wife are one flesh, mysteriously, when you get married, you'll feel that, you'll experience that. So it is on a higher level with, with God and us. And so love defines relationship. God, God's initiatory love defines it, ultimately wrapped up in his son and what he did for us on the cross. It'll come up again uh, a little bit later. Now, this is not to say that we won't learn anything at all about human marriage in the book. We will. I think the book does speak to that. We'll talk about the human and divine sides even today of the book. Just like Christ is human and divine fully, the, the written as the, as the word of God, Christ is the word of God, the written word of God carries that with it sometimes as well. There's this human side, maybe a little bit more accessible side, or where are we in this side? And then there's a divine side. Where's Christ? How is he anticipated? How is he explicitly proclaimed? How is his love 
really behind that initial curtain of, okay, this is about a man and a woman loving each other. How is he really the ultimate causer and great author and great kind of meaning behind, uh, behind it all? So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do both. But just have, remember that when you read books like this, you might have heard this before or you were led to believe this or just kind of thought, well, it must be in there somewhere when you've approached Song of Songs. But there's no point in songs, Song of Solomon where Solomon says at the very end, and, and this is what this book means. You know, th- th- this book was written so that you can have better sex with your wife and your husband or whatever. Th- th- or they can have better, more communicative marriages. And th- it's not in there. It's just a story. And so we reread that in. If we, if we presuppose that this is ultimately about human marriage, that's us reading that into the book. The book never says that. So again, if we back up and say, well, how does the Bible approach marriage? It's all, there's, never, there's never such thing in the Bible as, here's some marriage advice, but I have nothing to do with it. Like God saying that. It never happens. God always says, here's marriage advice or teaching, if you want to think about it that way, or maybe advice, but here's, here's something to wives or something to husbands or something in the marriage context about, about marriage, but I'm always connected to that. It always flows from me. It's always because of me or for me or to me or through me. I'm the ultimate one who marries. And so it's really ultimately about me. It's always what the Bible's doing, so we employ that paradigm onto this book to get most meaning out of it. But again, human divine. I want to rest, invite us to rest in that tension while seeing the, the greater thing here. Whether you're single, want to be married someday or not, uh, or married for a day or 50 years, it really doesn't matter where, what your marital status is. If it's ultimately about God's love for us and telling us something about his character, then it's just it's for all of us for, from, from all time. So again, we'll come at it from both sides. But Let's, uh, let's, get, let's get going. So song, today is uh, song 1, 1 to 4. If you want to open your Bibles, great. But a lot of this will be on screen here as well. Song 1, 1 to 4. Uh, the first verse, again, this uh, came up last week. Uh, we looked at the, the idea of Solomon being a type, a picture, an anticipation of, of Christ. Uh, and so verse 1 says, the song of song. This is the title of the book. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And so, again, we, we looked at... Um, Solomon being, and Jesus actually in Matthew 12 in the New Testament says that uh, something greater than Solomon is here, referring to himself. So he makes an explicit link, the New Testament does, with Solomon and what he's all about in the Old Testament in imperfect ways, and what Jesus is all about, being like him, being a son of David like Solomon was, being a king like Solomon was, being a man of wisdom and authority like Solomon was, being a lover and one who writes a love song like Solomon was. And so the connection we made is, there's many connections you can make here in in relationships between Solomon and Jesus to see the one pointing to the other. But the connection we made is that Solomon wrote this book with his pen. He wrote a love song. What Jesus is doing as this greater Solomon is he he is writing the greatest, even an even greater love song, ultimate love song with his blood. And so we see things like uh, the church singing the song of the Lamb in the book of Revelation, the church singing the new song that he puts on our mouth, and it has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Christ is associated with songwriting. He is associated with being that ultimate, um, that ultimate psalmist, you could say, or that ultimate uh, exuder of wisdom like, uh, like Solomon is here. So then we talked about, so talk about, talked about that last week. What we did not talk about is the first four words here, which says, the song of songs... And just, again, don't read past that too quick. Remember, what, what does that mean that he's saying, this is a song I'm writing, but it's the song of songs? It's saying that it's the greatest of many, right? So this is the greatest, the greatest song I've ever written. And Solomon wrote a lot of songs in 1 Kings 4. It says he wrote 
1,005 songs. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005, which I love that specific nature of that, you know. It's like 1,000 would have been true too, right? It would have been rounded down or even 1,500, but I guess that's a little high. But 1,005, not 1,000, 1,005, bam. So, but anyway, he wrote 1,005 songs, but this is the greatest, the Song of Songs is the greatest, the one truly inspired, the one that carries with it uh, the most divine wisdom. And what is its content? Love. Which shouldn't surprise us in one sense, right? I mean, love is a very common theme in story today and movies and songs. Uh, it's it's uh, rampant, right? It's almost in everything. Uh, Mark and I and Peter were talking a bit about, I think last week came up too, but just joked about with this series in mind, with love being such a focus, is we have like no songs to do during the series. There's like nothing on love out there. No one's ever written a song about love, right? But um, not really. There's just like everywhere, pretty much everything. Close your eyes and point to one and you probably hit on one that's about love. So, so it shouldn't surprise us, but we need to remember that this is the case because love is the greatest force in the universe. And we affirm that as Christians because, not that this is kind of this uh, nebulous, you know, spiritual, you know, non-personified force of love. The Bible says God is love. And if that's the case, and if God created everything out of nothing, then we should expect things around us, like, you know, like marriage or love and friendships or just the, the narratives and stories that make up our world would, have, would intersect with love on a regular basis. Because God made everything. Everything we see did not coexist as matter with God in the beginning. The Bible says God made everything out of nothing. Everything. So if that's the case, then we should expect that everything is for him or it flows from him or it relates to him somehow or it's not, it's not replacing him. These lights aren't God. These pews aren't God. You and I aren't God. But there's a sense to which we are in the image of God. And lights tell us about the, the light-filled, the non-dark characteristic of our creator. And, you know, things like chairs and oak trees and rivers and mountains. And th- those things aren't just randomly devised by God. They, they tell us something about him. And love is a big piece to that. So we shouldn't be surprised when love is powerful, when it moves in our hearts, when it makes us think, when it drives us crazy, when it controls us, when it moves in us to lay down our lives. And when it grants us immense pain when we lose it, we shouldn't be surprised at that if the ultimate author of everything is, in essence, love. So the Bible's saying here, uh, this is the greatest song ever written. And we might think, well, that's subjective, you know? That's like, how can you say that? But actually the Bible's saying, no, there's a degree of objectivity to this. Uh, that no matter what you feel, your favorite song is, doesn't really matter. The Bible's saying, this is, no matter what you feel about it, this is the greatest song. Or at least we kind of widen back and say, at least that the greatest songs or the greatest stories ever told or, or written have love in them. At least we, we affirm that uh, biblically. So this is how we begin. Solomon wrote a lot of songs, a uh, great musician. He wrote a lot, great lyricist, and, but we don't have any of them. We have a couple of psalms, I guess psalms he wrote, so maybe a couple others, but this is this ultimate, ultimate inspired one that tells us the most about God. It's, it's the song of all of his songs, this masterpiece that he wrote, and it has to do with, with love. All right, so let's keep reading. Uh, verses 2 to 4 is today's passage. Uh, remember the, the headings here is uh, she and he and others, and, and those headings, subheadings in your Bibles aren't a part of the original Hebrew manuscripts. They are added as tra- so translators can just help us because grammatically it's just difficult to know when someone stops speaking sometimes in this book and who starts and so forth. So they're added to help us uh, know, okay, well now it's the, 
now it's the uh, bride-to-be here, and now it's Solomon, and, and so forth. So, But I'll read them in for clarity. She, verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Others, we will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. All right, so contextually here, uh, it's likely that this is depicting uh, the engagement period. Remember, that's anticipation time here of deeper friendship, of marriage, of sex and physical closeness, of an emotional closeness as well. Um, but it's all anticipation here at this point. We'll get to the wedding later and consummation will come later. But possibly also the bride being brought to the king via some kind of customary uh, ceremony pre-wedding. But at least it depicts this. It depicts at least her heart. And we get a picture of her heart, pretty clear picture of where she is, right? Well, nothing's being really hidden here. We know what she thinks about the guy. We know what she thinks about the king. She's making that clear. Her, de- her desires for her love and she talks about him. She celebrates him. So understanding at least that is helpful. And, and part of the name of the game here for interpretation these next 15 weeks will be just try to step back and get the big picture. If you get too lost in minutia first, you'll get frustrated. Just get back and ask, well, what's happening here in general? When we ask that for this, on the first side of it here, we see that a woman is praising her, her fiancé. Wife-to-be is celebrating him, and, and others are chiming in and saying, yeah, you're right, he is, he's an amazing man. So they're not the, the wife, they're just maybe friends of the wife and, and, they're, and they're celebrating him as well for the same things. They copy her kind of in a sense too and say, yeah, his love is pretty great. We'll extol him for it, we'll celebrate him for it and your love is better than wine. So the, the love being better than wine aspect you'll note uh, here in verse two and four uh, it comes up. It comes up twice. So we at least understand that, that the big picture, she's praising him, others are praising him too, and kind of joining in uh, this chorus. And so we'll start then to go back how I began before. Remember, I have these categories in mind. They relate, but separate them too for clarity. There's the human side of this passage, and there's the divine side. We'll start with the human. When we see that, uh, that principle play out of wives to husbands, or this human side of what does this speak into marriage? What principles do we learn here? about communication and marriage, about love, and other things as well. It's on the more accessible side, and though most accessible isn't always the best, and so that's true here, that the, the, le- the less accessible side, what it says about Christ is the better, but still important. Again, what we're seeing is simply a woman prays her husband-to-be. And there's, there's a private side to this, which I think is inferred, comes up later a bit more. You see them alone talking about each other. That love dialogue happens behind closed doors and, and so forth, but... Here, there's a public dimension to it, which is kind of, it's poetic, and you have to kind of do the hard work of seeing that, but notice there's the others, right, who also, they're obviously hearing her say this because they say the same thing. There's a public dimension to this uh, praise of uh, the, the husband by uh, the, the wife-to-be, so principle there. So I just want to pause and speak on this human level to all of you wives in the room, or wives-to-be, so I guess all the women that would be, and maybe you don't want to be married someday, and it's fine, but um, so maybe you can tune out for a second, but um, pretty much everybody here, uh, and it's not as though this does not apply to husbands on any level, uh, it's just that wives are talked about first. There's a principle here of, a, of a, how a wife speaks about her husband, 
that I think is really important. Lisa and I talk about this quite a bit in our own marriage and with the uh, couples we counsel on the pre-married and the married side and how important this is. And so, husbands, your time's coming, just not this week. So, or wives, if you're thinking, dude, Austin's getting off easy. Uh, it's coming. Don't worry. Uh, the husbands actually have a lot, um, uh, a lot. We get taken through it, I think, a lot more. So um, our, our day is definitely coming. But this is how it starts, wife to husband. So, so wives and future wives, the, the, the simple call here is to do this. <laughs> Emulate this. Or, or think about it in these terms, too. Maybe think about it in the form of a question. Uh, when you talk to, in any kind of, you know, public dimension, and there's obviously a way to abuse this and to be just obnoxious. You know, if your friends are always going to talk about your, your husband, they're probably like, dude, shut up, you know. <laughs> I want to talk about something else. But there's, there's a way to do this within, you know, uh, I think within moderation in a way that's humble, in a way that just is kind of contextual, uh, to, to talk with your friends about your spouse that's celebratory and not complaining. So when you gather, with your, when you talk about your husband to your friends, are you primarily complaining about him being a failure? In any way, are you hinting at it, or are you celebrating his traits? So, I mean, I'm talking about behind closed doors, when you email people, when you, when you meet with them in private, when he's not there, or maybe when he is there. That's really cool, too, but when he's not there, how are you talking about your husband? Is it primarily a time to complain or primarily a time to, to celebrate? When Ephesians 5 in the New Testament, verse 33 says, and this is Paul writing to all the wives in the Ephesians church and wives-to-be, Wives must respect their husbands. Uh, this is what it's getting at, uh, this idea right here. Uh, because respect can kind of be abstract. We, we hear that a lot, and we talk, we, we've wrestled with that too, that question of what does respect really mean today, and what does it look like for a wife to do that? It can be abstract. One of the best ways to think about it practically, uh, if you're a wife or you're going to be a wife, is, is um, celebrate. Doing, doing this kind of stuff, private, but also even semi-public, uh, is to celebrate uh, your husband. And she does it in a couple of levels here that are very practical. His name, name and character are very linked in the ancient world. And it is today for us too. Like we say, uh, you know, Marx made a name for himself when he, you know, did such and such. Or I'm trying to get something funny, but I couldn't. Sorry. Yeah, I know, you're smiling. I know, I almost had something, but I didn't. Um, the Mark made a name for himself, or, you know, I made a name for myself. It's kind of the same idea, but it was, almost, it was more robust of a connection in the ancient world than it is for us today. So to say your name is like oil poured out is to say your character is like oil poured out. Your character is worthy of praise. Your character is incredible. Your character moves my heart uh, to tears. Like it's, it's that, that kind of uh, thing is going on here. So wives do that. Second is loving him, loving his love more than wine. So the love that he gives you is the most important thing in your life except Jesus, the most important thing. Not that you can't enjoy other things, and wine here is a good thing. It wouldn't make sense if wine is painted in a bad light here. A lot of you guys like wine, but if you don't, just understand here, wine's a good thing. So it's not saying, you know, your love is better than, than a sore throat, you know. That just be, it wouldn't make sense. But, but if it's, your love's better than a really good thing, what she, she's doing is she's prioritizing here and, and saying your love's better than some of the best things in the world. And this, these are really great things. But your love for me, not just you as a person, your character and name, but you're, the love that you show me is uh, without parallel. It's the most important thing in my life. So, again, wives, do this. Uh, it's one of the best things you can do to build up his masculinity and to bless your marriage, uh, bar none. There's a lot of things you can do, but if you're talking, and if you surprise him, you know, like once I, um, this is going to sound like I'm snooping my wife's email, but I'm not. 
uh, came across, came across. I know not, there's, there's no way to sugarcoat this. I don't know. Came across an email that she sent to some friends, and um, she's celebrating me. And I didn't ask for that, or I didn't um, say, now's a good time to, to do this. Or, I, you know, I don't know. It's not it's something she just did unprompted. And to be surprised by that is just very, um, it, builds up, it builds up a man. It just does. And I think uh, that on that respect level, a lot, not that women aren't when that happens, but I think it, men are distinctly wired to be respected and to have, I appreciate what you do for a living. I appreciate you're, you're so good at this particular hobby or this thing. And, uh, I, and especially your love. When you love me this way, uh, it just moves me. And uh, those, those types of things. Or to say to, you know, again, to say to friends that, and then you read, oh, she really thinks this, and it's kind of public. And these other friends are kind of chiming in and saying, wow, that is pretty amazing that he did that. Or whatever it is. When you surprise him, uh, or, or at least God knows, right, and your friends, that this is how I'm celebrating my husband, um, that is, uh, that's, that's huge. And so, but to, just to qualify, obviously, I hope this goes without saying, obviously this, is, this does not mean that you need to cover up your husband's sin, that he gets a free pass to be lazy and say, well, I don't have to do anything, just respect me, you know, or something. That's just obviously silly and not, not the point. Uh, nor does it mean that you should never talk to someone about your marital struggles. You should. You should. You should not be alone in that. Um, and some of you might be thinking, I don't think my wife's, or so my husband is worthy of respect, so how can I do that? Those are big issues that I'm not trying to skirt over here and just ignore. Please don't hear me on that. Uh, but this is just saying in general, in general, respect him, err on the side of bragging about him to others and to his face, celebrating him, and then when you share concerns, do it to him privately. And then beyond that, to maybe a few trusted people um, together, and rather than... Uh, it's one of the most emasculating things you can do is, is just complain about your husband to your friends, and then he finds out about that later. I, I promise you, it will not end well. It just won't. You know, it's really going to do tons of... Almost, not irreparable, but um, it's going to take a long time to repair that if you lose your husband's trust that way. So be very, very careful with how you communicate about him uh, publicly and, and privately. But anyway, I digress. All this is really kind of inferred. It's, it's the flip side of the coin. What we're seeing here, though, is the positive side. What comes to the forefront is simply, again, a woman praising her um, husband-to-be. And, um, and the reason it's so beautiful, and this is, this is the key bridging element here, this is not just God saying, well, I made the world this way for husbands to respond to respect in a positive manner and so forth, and men like to be respected, so I'm going to kind of just write that in through Solomon. It's not that. It's actually behind respect, wives respecting their husbands is a beautiful image. That's more true. It's actually, it points beyond itself. This is why it's so powerful. It points beyond itself to this, to the church adoring Christ. When a wife adores her husband and brags about it, it's a, it's a whisper. It's according to Ephesians 5, when a wife respects her husband, and actually, he links that. I didn't read this part today, but Paul links that with the church praising and respecting Christ and responding to his love. That's what you see in a marriage when, when a wife is responding and reciprocating that love back to him, but respecting him for who he is as a man, like, again, we do to Christ. So that's why it's a beautiful image. That's why even, not, even a person that's completely foreign to this idea will be impacted. By that, uh, when, when you come across, I mean, we have that too. And in, in the context of the church, I might hear, uh, you know, Becky Carlson talk highly of Peter. And Becky works here, and just in passing, and think that's a powerful kind of moment. I and mean, it's a small thing, but there's this image here of the church adoring Christ, which reminds us of the greater narrative that we're all a part of. 
So that leads me to our next uh, angle here on the passage that we'll spend more time on today, which is the divine side. So the human side is wives to husbands. The divine side reflects this, and, uh, or vice versa, actually. The former points to this, but this is the ultimate reality, the church to Jesus side, the divine side. And the big picture here helps us again. When we address the question, where is Jesus in this passage ahead of time? How is he prophetically anticipated, like he is all over the Old Testament? How is he anticipated? How is he the true Solomon here uh, being hinted at? In a foggy manner, but it gets more clear later in the story. When we ask that question, backing up again, the big picture really helps again. So we start with the same thing. A woman's praising her husband-to-be. And more specifically, maybe here, it's a celebration of the king. So King Solomon is the he. It's a celebration through words of the king. And there are three things in particular that are being celebrated, uh, celebrated here for, or, um, that are part of the, part of the king. Three, three words or ideas uh, that depict his character and mission well. His name, uh, his anointing oils, and his love. His name, his anointing oils, and his love. And so I'm going to address these first uh, in, tan, or, uh, in a order here, those three things, and just to show you how these, because really all these three things, if you think about it, we should think about it in these terms too when certain things like name and oil come up in the book, is how are these words revisited elsewhere or later, more specifically, in the book, and how do they reference Christ there? I'll make some connections and connect some dots here just for clarity if you're new to this especially, uh, but then really come back to what this means for us and what this what these things challenge our heart with uh, after that. So, three things. The first is your name. So, I talked about that before on the human level, but also the, the, the church does this to Christ as well, right? We say this, whether we say it with these exact words or not, we say this all the time. We praise Jesus for his name. It's important that his name is Jesus because of what it means. It's precious to us. In Matthew one twenty one, it says, this is the angel speaking to Joseph, she Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, this is the name meaning, for he will save his people from their sins. So name and character, God actually caring about us to save us like this, and then mission, what the mission of God is in the world is all connected. It's all connected. And so, so for us then, we don't rename Jesus, we don't you know, call him something, he has different names of course, but we don't change this. His name is precious to us, and we celebrate him for many things, but in part for his name. It's the same thing going on in Song 1, just here on a, on a much spiritual, more spiritual level. Revelation 3, to end of the Bible, it says, uh, this, name so, this name so closely associated with his work for us on the cross that it will characterize us, it will rename us. And so Revelation 3 says, Jesus speaking, I will write on him, on the believer, the believer in me, the Christian, the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and here's a special key here, my own new name. So Jesus writes his name on us. And that's powerful, right? We're, we're claimed for him. It's something that he says, that one's mine, that one's mine, that one's mine. And he's renaming us. He's given us this new identity. So to go back to some marriage imagery, uh, not unlike, uh, traditionally, a wife will change her name to match her husband's. Not unlike that at all. Traditionally, this is where this comes from, or at least whether you intend this or not, this is, or a couple intends this or not, this is the spirit of what's going on here, is like the church changes our name to match Jesus's, so a wife changes her name. It doesn't lose her initial identity completely. It's just that they, in one sense, 
couple comes together, they both die, and they become one new family unit. And so when a wife does change her name, uh, it's reflective of this greater idea. But regardless, Christ's name is precious to us because it points us to the cross, and it redefines our life around him. And if we think about, this is why these things are, this might seem like a small thing. This is why they're so important, though. If you start to think about the gospel on these terms, uh, these new name, new identity terms, uh, it's really hard to think about that and then to think, I could really lose that salvation really easily if I worked at it hard. You know? Like if, I mean, renamed, re-identified, stamped like this, and God is the initiator, it's much harder to get to the, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm saved. I, might, I could lose it really easily if I'm not careful, or I guess I'll find out on that last day of judgment if I'm in or not. It's really hard to go there if you have this, naming idea by God is God is naming renaming people so these are really these precious name idea and characterizing ideas uh, that we need to remember that pertain to what the gospel really is and what it does for us and to us all right second thing your anointing oils are fragrant and again we say this about Jesus's fragrant anointing oils as well just in different ways uh, Matthew 26 for example 7 and 12 it says pre-crucifixion a woman came up to Jesus with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment and poured it out in his head as he reclined at table. And then Jesus says about this a couple of verses later, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. So, again, think big picture to make these connections. You have Solomon associated with, with fragrance in Song 1, and you have Jesus associated with fragrance here in Matthew 26. Both are Solomon's, both are son of David's, both are authoritative, both are wise, and the former, according to Jesus, points to the latter. And so we'd expect to see this kind of connection that Christ has, I mean, Solomon has this great cologne, apparently, uh, but Jesus has much, something much better. He has burial spice. He, he has a spice that reminds us that he came to die. This, this is what the, the, the aroma of Christ the scent of Jesus is all about. It's, it's the fragrance of the gospel of Jesus' death and burial, being that sweetest fragrance known to mankind. It's part of our continual celebration, like the woman is here uh, in Matthew 26 is doing, and kind of a la song one as well. But it's part of our continual celebration of his kingliness. It's actually also why Paul the Apostle in the New Testament says, in a couple of places, one in particular, that you, Christian, have the aroma of Christ about you. You smell like him. His cologne, spiritually speaking, has rubbed off on you like a, a wife clinging to her husband starts to smell like him, you know, if you want to think about it that way. That, that, that's what's going on. You're the aroma of Christ to a dead and dying world. This is all song imagery. This is all meant to be connected. This is all, Christ is smelling a certain way, and that scent is the gospel. It's a death and resurrection, and when we're close to him, when we know him better, when we hug him close, when we receive his love, that people will see it on you. They will notice you're different. They will notice that you're happy when you should be sad. Uh, they, they will notice that you're, you're steady, you're, you're rock solid in the fact that you are a child of a living God and nothing can take that away from you. You're less anxious and depressed maybe than you used to be or whatever it is. They will smell that and some will rejoice, kind of like the others here in this passage. Some will rejoice and some will think it's a stench because they're not being saved. And they, don't, they want nothing to do with Christ. And so I can't stand that Jesus. I can't stand what he's claiming in the scriptures. I can't, claim what this, I can't stand what this means uh, for me or something else. 
But this is why Paul, I think, writes in this aroma. He could have written in different metaphorical language, but to say in the New Testament we have the aroma of Christ is to pull from Song 1 in Matthew 26 and to say that Jesus is the sweetest fragrance uh, and he has it known to mankind. Third and final, uh, for your love is better than wine. And again, the church relatedly believes that Jesus' love is incomparable. And we've experienced it. So it's not just a belief thing, it's an experience thing. That God has a love, and it's greater than wine, it's greater than the world, it's greater than the treasures of the earth, and we've experienced that too in our lives. So like Psalm 63 says, same language, but a different Old Testament book. Notice how it's similar but different. Speaking to God, because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Solomon has great love for his wife to be in this book, but it's not as great as Jesus is because Solomon never died for his wife. Uh, It's not to like downplay it. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's mysterious. It's captivating, but it's not as great. Jesus, the greatest form is sacrificial love. And the greatest form of that is the love I give to the world because I've, as the God-man, died for the sins of the world. So the greatest form of love is when, when a man dies for his wife or specifically, on a higher end, Christ dies for lost people, uh, his bride. Then 1 John 3, 1, uh, which I think is a, uh, I think it's a New Testament version of Song 1, 2, which again is the love is better than wine statement. I think 1 John 3, 1 says, it's almost a digression. If you know 1 John 3, he's stating some things and just kind of pauses to say, isn't this amazing? Which is what we do every week here with preaching. Is just to say, it's basically what all I do is say, look at what this says. Isn't this incredible? And, you know, looking for agreement. And some people aren't saved yet. They don't agree yet. Some of you guys are still figuring this stuff out. It's fine. But for those who are the church, it's to say, yes, I agree. I've forgotten, but now I agree. This is amazing. 1 John 3 says, see... What great love the Father has lavished, song language, lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Children. You see that the love of God that brought us there, now that we can dine at the table of God, we can eat with him, we can be called just like a kid to a, a mom and a dad, we can be that close to him and have that kind of status before him. The Bible's getting at here, especially in context, which I didn't read, but I'll infer this, as, um, or the Bible does is to say that the cross alone gets us to this place of being a child of God. There's nothing in the Bible, or even in logic in one sense too, that just says that, well, if we go this route or do this or don't do this, then we can also become a child of God. The Bible says God has to die as one of us. I mean, otherwise, God is at best like an employer to you. He's your boss that you try to make happy with your works. You try to approach him based on moral effort at best, but that gets you nowhere. God is saying, that's not the end game. It's not what I'm about. I'm here to save people and to redefine them as my children or another metaphor like we're talking about today, my wife. I'm here to wed people or to adopt people into my family on that children level, not keep them as boss. But that's just where a lot of you probably are today or you thought Christianity was all about. It's about having a job review with God at the end of every year and how did I do? Oh, I could probably do a little bit better there and God's saying, nope, got to do better there. Kind of sucked over here. But really try hard here. Yeah, pretty good there. Pat you on the back, make you feel good about yourself. Not Christianity. In fact, if I could describe the epitome of the antithesis 
of Christianity, that would be it right there. Just think that. If you want to be distinctly unchristian, just think that about God, and you're on your way to a great anti-Christian life right there. So, but uh, what, what, the, what the opposite is, is God saying, I'm not your boss, I'm your father. I'm your lover. And what defines now this relationship is my love for you, not what you do. Not what you do. Lay it down. Come to me messy and I will clean you. Come to me and I will unconditionally wash your sin away because I've made that possible. That's a much, that's a much different storyline, right? But that's Christianity. The other side I talked about before, that's religion. That's other world religions or that's a, like, like a synchronized version of Christianity with, um, with a, you know, another world philosophy or something. It's, it's very high on people but low on God. High on works, but low on, low on God's grace. Okay, but here's then where this starts to preach, and I'll come back to some of that. Got way ahead of myself, but here, here's what starts to preach: is I'm going to ask you guys a question, and I want you to be, try to try to um, uh, prevent yourself from answering this too quick, because I, I know that I, I'd be right there with you. I'd answer it way too quick, but try to just let this marinate for a few seconds at least. And it's this question here, and I'm rephrasing Song One here to um, fit the fulfillment of it. But God. Your love is better than wine or life. This is what Song 1 is ultimately saying and pointing to. God, your love is better than wine. Your love is better than treasures of the world. Your love is better than my life. And whatever I have or don't have, your character and your love for me. Now the question is, Christian or or not, and I I guess I'm speaking more to Christians today because if you're not a Christian, I know you don't believe that. But um, for Christians here, do you believe that? Is that really where your heart is? I don't care about yesterday or 10 years ago, but what about right now? Is this expressing your affections towards the living God? And, and is your, are, you, are your actions, is your lifestyle kind of keeping in step with, and your attitudes keeping in step with what the affections we're seeing the woman show to the king? Does that describe your spirituality? If you were to like title it and say, my, my Christian spirituality looks like what this woman is saying to the king in general, uh, w- would that be an accurate statement or, or not? Is it, is it lacking? And no one's perfect there, obviously. Point is, in one sense, the answer is no for all of us in the room because none of us are, are. We're being saved from a place of not believing this, right? We don't. We don't. We're born of the world with this amazing affection towards God. That comes later when we hear about Christ, when it's working in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So does the gospel compel us to this end is, is the idea. And Again, I alluded to this, but if you're new to the Bible here, uh, let me just give it to you in uh, like 30 seconds, uh, the Bible in a nutshell. Because it says that God saves us from many things, but including a place of not believing these types of things. So here's the storyline in a, just in a few points here. In the beginning, Adam and Eve, the first two human beings ever created, they did believe that. They did believe that God was all-sufficient, that his love was better than wine, it was better than all earthly treasures, it was better than their life. They believed that. The greatest treasure in the universe is God and his love for us. He's sufficient. He's enough. But second, Satan said to them, though, however, God lied. His name isn't that great. He's unreasonable. He's unloving. You need something else, especially yourselves. Adam and Eve believed him. They believed the lie. They rebelled against God and all hell broke loose. Sin entered the world and spread like a brush fire through all history, unchecked until... God broke the silence, entered into history himself, became a human being, and died for our sin, our, which is our rejection of his all-sufficient goodness. But he loved us still. He showed us that on the cross. And then five, 
The many who believed in this gospel, in this gospel received transformed hearts, who then once again proclaimed God's love is indeed better than all the treasures of the earth. Amen. That's the whole Bible. So, I mean, keep reading it, but that's just, that's the whole Bible, pretty much. But you see how part of the storyline is God is recovering and saving, not just washing our sins away, but washing away our propensity to not think he's that great or needed. That's, that's the epitome of sin. And so our affections are, they have to be a part of the story. You know, we, we move from this place of either hating God or not caring about God to a place of deeply caring about him and saying, like the woman, he is more important than anything in my life and actually believing that and living that out. You know, we won't be perfect in that, but the question is, am I a part of this storyline or not? Even the first, and the, the first and last thing here, spoil it down even simpler. In the beginning, Adam and Eve believed that God was the greatest treasure in the universe, and then two happened, three happened, so God did four, so that five could occur. The many who believed in this gospel received the hearts to say, see, he's recovering Eden. He's recovering what was there in the beginning. And the way he did that is to wash sin, but to also transform hearts and to turn us back to him by expressing his love in the way that he did on a cross for us. And so it brings us back. It, it, re, it recreates this prayer for us that, that is God-focused and, and happy, happy in him. I, actually, I have a quote here too from Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, who says, I think this is not in a song commentary, but um, it's totally on topic. He says, happiness is a byproduct of wanting something more than happiness. So when, when Jesus' death on a cross and his love for us in that becomes more important to us than being happy, we get really happy. Because you weren't wired to find happiness apart from God. It just doesn't happen. At least it doesn't endure. If we see that those things as gifts from God, like marriage and food and jobs and nature, then, then we can have some degree of happiness in that as gifts from him. But if they're aside from him, they just won't last. And so true happiness comes from pursuing something Valuing something more than comfort and happiness and peace in life, and that is God, God himself, and God's love. So that we'll have this type of affection, again, your love really is better than wine, but we'll also start to pray in a way that will, that will look like this. So we can ask that too about the way we pray. It's usually a good litmus test for where our spirituality is. If the 90, you know, 9% of our prayers is, God, I need this thing, or I need this rent, or I need this job, or please give me a spouse, or whatever it is, and that's it, amen. It's just very utilitarian. It's very contractual. It's, it's not the spirit of how people who are really saved, who really understand what God's actually like, what his love's actually like, respond. So, litmus test is, can our prayer life look like this? Is the center of our prayers, God, you are amazing, you're good, you're gracious, Thank you for being this way. Thank you for doing this for me 2,000 years ago and just worshiping. Not that God doesn't care about the minutia of our life. He does. So we can pray these things, but we've got to pray these things. We've got to pray these things. and It's, it's indicative then of where our heart is uh, before, before him. So, all right. Here, here's this follow-up question, though, because I'm guessing a lot of you, maybe all of you to a degree, but um, some of you especially just asked as I posed all of that, well, what if I don't feel that? And I'm a Christian. What if I'm saved, but I, I, I believe that up here, but I don't believe that right here. And my life for maybe years hasn't really reflected that type of affection towards God. Two things. On the one hand, be free. Uh, remember, you are not saved by how much you feel this. You're saved from not feeling it. 
So if that's the case, you can expect not feeling it in seasons as a Christian throughout your life because you're still a sinner like me. So we're going to have periods and seasons of that. So the, the, the remedy then is to run back to God, confess the sin of thinking my life's better and my happiness is better than his love, confess that, and enjoy the fact that he bled for that one. He died for that one. That's not one that Jesus kind of left on the ground. No, he bore that one too on a cross. He bore that for you and me. He bore that sin of high treason, spiritual high treason, and replacing him with ourselves. He bore that one. So confess that and rejoice that God loves you even amidst uh, your lack of feeling this. But So that's on the one hand, and maybe primary. On the other hand, though, look at your heart and make sure you're believing the true gospel. It's very easy to believe half gospels uh, today. It always was throughout history, but it's very easy to believe a gospel that's kind of true, but not, uh, not completely true. And there's really no remedy. There's nothing I can really say to you if that's really where your heart is today or say to myself when my heart's there too. Nothing I can really say that's aside from the gospel of Jesus Christ or, you know, God becoming a human being to die on a cross for your sins 2,000 years ago and loving you there. There's nothing that can make you love him more aside from that. There's no, like, 10-step program or, you know, book by whoever and, um, that, I can, that I can point you to. You just, you just can't. You can't say, you know, if you serve the poor more, then you'll love God more. When's that happen? It just doesn't happen. Or not that you shouldn't do that. It's just it's not that, like the impetus for loving God more. Or, nor can we say, be kind more and, and be humble more. And then we'll say with the woman in song one, oh, your name, your love. But preceding that is just this call to be kind. Or, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. Nor can I even simply say, stop loving other things more. Try harder to love God more. I mean, when does that work in a family? You know, when, when you tell, a, tell, if you guys have kids, you tell your kid, love me more. When does that work? That never, ever, 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 ever has worked in the history of humankind. So, so what, why, why do you religiously try to, to kind of employ that perspective on God and you into your religious or your spiritual system and, and worldview? So we, we, the only thing, it's like to go back to the family thing, this is true for a husband's wife, or love for his wife too, for parental love to a kid, what defines the relationship there? Is it the kid's love for you? Does, does a child come out of the womb saying, Dad, I love you, with like perfect English, you know? And, and here's, like, how I'm going to demonstrate this to you. I'm going to just, you know, write you letters and, and celebrate you and, you know, just be perfectly obedient or whatever, you know? It's, it doesn't happen, you know? The, the relationship's defined by you loving the child when the child does not love you. It's the same with God. Your relationship with him is defined when you don't love him, he loves you still. And he unconditionally says, I'm plastering my name on his forehead and you can't erase that sucker. It's on there forever. And I'm writing it with my blood. Your name's in the book of life. It can't be erased. And I've died for your sin. I mean, all of that is, you know, it's true for a husband too, I think loving a wife to a degree. There's a lot more reciprocation there, of course, than a parent to a, um, a child. But I think there's also truth there for husbands to really define that relationship with that initiatory leadership Dying for my wife, love. That'll come up a lot more in future weeks, though, so a little teaser on that. But regardless, uh, that, that's, that's what we have to rest in, is the only remedy for loving God little, the only remedy for loving God little, if that's where you are, is to know that God has loved you much. That's it. There's no other paradigm, no other fancy pop psychology thing I can throw your way. It's, it's, there's nothing else. Knowing that God's loved you this way will remedy where you are. It'll, it'll bring you up. It'll raise your affections. Uh, towards, towards him. Uh, Burroughs says this about this whole concept in his song commentary. Christianity 
does not consist in rising to any imaginary standard of piety or in being as holy as we may consider some illustrious saints in rising to certain frames of which we have heard and which we have desired. But here's what Christianity is all about. Being filled as full of the Holy Spirit as our capacities can bear. That's what being spiritual is. So well, th- then what's the question? Well, if that's the answer, how do I get that spirit, right? How do I get the Holy Spirit? How do I get full of the Holy Spirit? What's the biblical answer there? What's God say? Profess my name. Call out to my name and you'll be saved and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. It's a promised gift from afar and now it's here. Believe. That's it. Spiritual people are defined by God's love rather than their tasks uh, before, before him. You also see it here too in the end of, I'll just reference this verse and spend a lot of time on it today, but uh, when it says, the, the woman says, draw me after you, the king has brought me in. Draw me after you, Solomon. And, and the king has brought me into his, his chambers. Who's doing the active verbal idea there? Who's doing that? Someone just say it, non-rhetorical. Who's doing it? The king, right? What's she doing? She's requesting. She's, she's asking. She, she's calling out to her husband-to-be to, to be that active force in the relationship, but she's a recipient. And it's the same with us. Like, we don't see her in, in song one, we don't see her come up and say, you know, to the king, you know, your name's great, and here's all these amazing things that I did. Can I get in now? He brings her into the chambers, just like God brings us into the holy place, into, where, into the ultimate temple of his presence. Uh, he, he does that work. He brings us in. He takes the sin away so that it is, it is possible. Christian spirituality is, draw me after you, God. Christian spirituality is, like what the woman says here, the king has brought me in to his chambers. That's what we say to people when we evangelize them. Basically that, right? God has done amazing work in my life, and he loves you too. Let me tell me about what he's done. And that's, that's what woos people to, uh, back to God too. Uh, one thing in conclusion here, one more verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 2 to 3. This is New Testament now, but it hits on a lot of these themes I've been talking about. <clears throat> where it says, uh, he's writing to the church, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There's, that, there's two scary things here. Uh, you know, one, the serpent's still lying to us. I mean, even right now in this room as I'm saying this, I mean, I guarantee, I don't know, I'm just throwing a number, but probably half of you or something or whatever. A lot of you are probably thinking, I just don't know if I believe that. Or maybe it's come up on a different Sunday where you think, I just don't know if I believe that gospel. I just don't think it's that all sufficiently good. Or I just can't put all my eggs in that basket. Or just don't know if it's true. And what that is, is it's the ultimate liar whispering in your ear like you did to Eve saying, God is not good. He's not all sufficient. You need more. You need yourself. He's lied to you. He's kind of good, but not really that good. And, and your life is defined by other things. Not You don't need him. You need yourself. That's, that's this, this whisper that we'll get as Christians. If you're not a Christian, you've bought hook, line, and sinker into that lie like we all did before we were Christians. But as Christians as well, we, we buy into that lie. And we have to watch, as he's saying here, two Christians, he's saying that the serpent will lie to you. And he'll say, God's not enough. But Song of Solomon and Jesus say, 
My love is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. My love is enough. It's all-encompassing. It's enough. There's nothing else that you need to be saved. There's nothing else you need to be happy than my love, my spirit, my grace, my promise to never leave you nor forsake you, but to be a faithful husband who will never divorce you, to be a faithful adoptive father who will always give you a place at my table. And it's by what I do that brings you in. I bring into my chambers. I'm, I'm the one who loves amidst your non-love for me. And he continues to hold that out all of our life, and we stumble around, and we believe it, and we start to you know, go the other way, but we trip over that finish line, and we fall on our face, and God picks us up and says, welcome home. You know, I, I, I've made this, po- I've, I've wooed you to myself, and he's, it's this marriage imagery. He's a father, but he's like this groom at the end of the aisle. We finally get there, and we're messy, and, but by God's grace, we're a pure virgin, according to 2 Corinthians. Uh, by, by his blood, we're washed white. Praise be to God. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, today and your grace in all of our lives. Thank you for your patience. Thank you that you speak into the chaos and the muck. You speak into the fog and the disclarity. Pray, Father, that uh, your, uh, just the, the doctrine of God's grace and love uh, would be preeminent uh, in our church if we are not applying it, because uh, we all don't. Not applying that way of living, the way we think about interacting with people and our spouses and our friends and the lost around us, that it would really inform it, uh, God. You alone and your love, shown for us on a cross 2,000 years ago, is better than wine. It's better than life, even. It's better than all the treasures of the earth. And God, I pray that that would seep down from our mind into our heart and make us make decisions in line with it, make us say no to things in line with it, make us say yes to things in line with it, and protect us all along from false doctrines that say, that say the opposite. Uh, God, bless us as we respond and go from here. And uh, we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.